worldtalkradio.com. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Friends, has life got you down? Are you in debt that you don't know how to get out of? Is your marriage spiraling down toward divorce? Are things so bad you could even consider suicide? Well, before you do anything rash, dig this. In the words of The Main Ingredient, 1971, it could be worse. You could also be in North Carolina. We're going to find out about people for whom this was the case. In a book called Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce, and Debt in Civil War Era North Carolina, it's written by our guest today, David Silkenat, on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the beautiful Brewster Building, where Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters is located on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, not speaking for the university or any of its component departments, just for myself. Our guest, likewise, will do the same today as we talk with you on a beautiful autumn afternoon. It's October 2012, October 12th specifically, the traditional day for Columbus's birthday celebrations here in the United States, although as some students have been uh, postering the campus with this past week uh, a placard that says uh, Columbus discovered America, not, uh, recognizing that there were several million people here first, but uh, still it was an important historical event, uh, however one chooses to interpret it, and that was some, uh, what was it, 500, uh, 1492, 520 years ago uh, this year, but that's not the history we're looking at today. We'll be going back to the Civil War era in just a minute. After a few reminders of upcoming shows, uh, we will have next week on the show, uh, October 19th, uh, Douglas Edgerton joining us to talk about the year of meteors, 1860, and the presidential election. As this year's presidential election heats up, we'll learn about what was going on in the election that led to secession and civil war. Uh, the following week, October 26th, Brian Wills, 
a friend of the show who has been on to talk about Nathan Bedford Forrest returns with his new biography of George Henry Thomas. Then on November 2nd, Brian Dirk will be with us to discuss the uh, topic of Abraham Lincoln in white America, looking at whiteness as a category. It's uh, quite an interesting and innovative book. I think uh, hopefully you'll enjoy hearing about it. Then on November 9th, Gail Stevens has a biography of Lou Wallace, author of Ben-Hur and division commander at Shiloh. Musician Bobby Horton will be with us on November 16th, pending his travel schedule. We're trying to get that nailed down for sure, but that's how it looks. Then we've got uh, Thanksgiving break uh, for the 23rd, We're possibly for the 30th. We'll see how that goes. And on uh, December 7th, John Jakes, the author of the legendary North and South Trilogy, will be with us here at Civil War Talk Radio. We're starting to line up guests for the new year as well. Uh, we'll have a very interesting look at traveling, uh, a road guides, uh, road trip guides for the Civil War will be the subject of our first show in January. We'll have more information about that later as, as we get closer. In the meantime, you can find out about all these things from www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney runs that shop and uh, you can also use that to get a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves by clicking on the PayPal button there and sending $20 or more to Civil War Talk Radio for the book fund where I buy books with your money and then talk about them so everybody gets something out of it. It has been uh, an interesting week uh, I'm starting to sound like Garrison Keeler here at Lake Wobegon. No, the, uh, but it does have to do with the far northern woods, not Minnesota, but Maine. My uh, daughter was on an outing trip from the college she attends in Brunswick, Maine, the alma mater of Joshua Chamberlain, so you all know what school that would be. And they, her, her group went off canoeing in the far down east woods, uh, something that groups do it was over fall break. They had four days to go do this, and and they didn't come back on the fourth day uh, or the next morning. And the college was on apparently on the brink of notifying parents there was a little mishap, and the students had all disappeared when they were located by search planes. And it turned out that they had in fact run into all kinds of bad weather and unexpected. Uh, terrain issues, the maps didn't match with what uh, what was really on the ground and their canoes couldn't go through and they had to portage through woods that turned out to not have trails in them contrary to the maps and eventually had to abandon their canoes and, and hike out uh, bushwhack through the unmarked woods. But uh, the the group leaders uh, and my daughter and several others had leader had wilderness training and knew what they were doing and came out safe, thank goodness, so all is well. But it's been an interesting week uh, wondering why you're not getting that text that says we're back from the trip for another 12 hours. Uh, so glad glad to know everybody is home safe and sound. And uh, what else can we share with you? It is, uh, as, as thanks to all of you on Facebook who've been sending birthday greetings to me uh, today, I turn uh, a certain number of years beyond 50 uh, here on October 12th. And 
that perhaps brings us appropriately to our our topic uh, today: uh, suicide, divorce, and debt in Civil War er- era North Carolina. Well, fortunately, the only one of those, well, two of them apply to me. I'm in North Carolina, and what with college and all, uh, I'm in debt. But uh, the other two, uh, not contemplating either uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and uh, looking forward to a uh, happy birthday celebration this evening, uh, not a uh, uh, one filled with moments of despair. But moments of despair is the name uh, of the book that we're we're looking at this week. So let's uh, bring in our author, David Silkenet. Uh, Doctor Silkenet, are you there? I'm here. Good to hear from you. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Um, am I pronouncing your last name right? Is the T sounded or is it silent? Yeah, it sounded Silkenet, yep. Okay. Uh, do you go by David or David? Yes, David's right? great. Great. And, and call me Jerry, please. Uh, well, things worked out really well this week. I've had this book on the shelf uh, for a couple months now. The University of North Carolina Press was good enough to send me a copy, and it has a, a very, uh, very nice nice isn't the word, a beautiful painting on the cover uh, of a broken-down Confederate veteran uh, looking at his empty uh, home, uh, his shack. Uh, he is experiencing moments of despair, clearly. Uh, to be sure. Uh, but it's very attractive. And I, I, when I got this book, my first thought was, you know, I'll do this. And then I thought, dang, you know, suicide, divorce, dead. I, I don't know if I can handle this. Uh, but I started looking at it, and it's fascinating, as, as we'll, we'll uncover over the next little while. But, you know, the schedule's full. There are plenty of books coming out. And then, fortunately, uh, the schedule opened up, and uh, you emailed at just the right moment to coincide with this. So I'm delighted that we can get together and talk about your book. You studied in North Carolina? Is that where the, Did this come out of a, a dissertation project? This grew out of my dissertation, yes, which I did at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. So uh, one might say that part of the despair in the book grows out of the despair of being in graduate school that everyone experiences. But, uh, you know, I think it gave me a great opportunity to mine all the archives in North Carolina, including uh, those at East Carolina, and uh, that's in part where the book came from. I, I saw that I was looking at your sources, and certainly the the, the very rich Southern history collections at, at Chapel Hill and uh, elsewhere were consulted. But it was, it's good to see uh, the special collections here at Joiner Library at East Carolina can contribute to that. We do have a good, uh, small but very well run archive. Sure. The, it's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful uh, search room. One of the most elegant, wonderful places to research. I've I've had a chance to do some research in and. Uh, I don't think enough scholars take the time to, to visit it because uh, the collections are wonderful and the, the space is extraordinary. Well, well, thank you. That that is our our little secret, and thank you for saying that. It is a beautiful uh, reading room with a, a skylight and uh, you know wood paneling and well designed, so they can bring the stuff out to you very quickly. Uh, and the staff is eager to help. Uh, it is a great place to do research, definitely. But now you're far from North Carolina currently. Uh, it says North Dakota State. Uh, yeah, I'm at, I'm at North, I've been at North Dakota State for the past five years. Our Dean of Arts and Sciences, uh, Alan White, I believe was formerly at North Dakota State before you got there. Okay. He's a bi- biology professor, but uh, I occasionally hear North Dakota stories from him. Uh, is it, in fact, uh, a, a cold and bleak existence? 
well, the snow we had last week melted, uh, but uh, I think we'll probably have some more before the year's out. It is. Uh, it does get pretty cold here. It's a good dry cold though, so it's it's fairly manageable. Uh, it's it's not like Chicago where it's wet and cold. Here at least it's bitterly dry and cold, so it uh, seems to be okay. Well, well, that's good. There, there's something to be said for having. Uh, I, I mean, it, well, it's cold here by local standards. The, the 50s uh, this week, and I'm loving the return of an actual season after six months of summer, but. Uh, Six months of winter, I don't know if I, I'm ready to go back to that. Well, let me dive right into to your topic here. You, your book is divided uh, topically into the three items in the subheading, and the, the first one is suicide. One of the major points you make is that the, the way suicide – is that, that the Civil War was a critical – turning point in how suicide was regarded in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, one imagines, I mean, any society obviously thinks of suicide as a negative event, a terrible event, uh, uh, if that society is to persist. Uh, but was society, was suicide particularly uh, abhorred in, in North Carolina before the Civil War? Well, before the Civil War, I think you had two very distinct attitudes towards suicide. Among white North Carolinians uh, before the Civil War, it is regarded as one of the most heavily stigmatized activities a person could engage in. Um, There was a a debating society at at UNC Chapel Hill who who asked one of their questions was, was suicide ever justifiable? And they concluded that in absolutely no case could one take one's own life. So the, and when they, people commit suicide, the way they're described in newspapers and in diaries, they say this is the worst thing a person could possibly do. Uh, and there's lots of sort of religious language that goes along with that about the person being condemned as a consequence of their choices. Uh, for African Americans, though, uh, before the Civil War, one finds a very different set of attitudes in North Carolina towards suicide uh, that African Americans most of whom are are slaves, tend to commit suicide when a family member is sold away or they're likely to be sold away from their family or when they're likely to be beaten uh, or or some other sort of horrendous uh, consequence of slavery. Um, And so African Americans tend to have a much more tolerant attitude towards suicide in the, in the decades before the Civil War. Uh, they're much more likely to be sympathetic when a slave takes their own life. Uh, if you read uh, fugitive slave narratives from North Carolina or if you read the later WPA narratives from North Carolina or from any southern state, you'll find suicide among slaves to be rather endemic. And so there's a very clear sort of relationship I found between both the social attitude towards suicide and how frequent it was. For whites before the Civil War, it was very, very rare because it was so heavily stigmatized. And for African Americans, it was obviously much more common and much less stigmatized. In, in, I was raised in a Catholic tradition, and I remember learning early age that suicide was an, an unforgivable sin. Sure. Uh, uh, that, that since the person who does it dies before they can repent, uh, they have no chance of being saved. 
And you you noted that there's no biblical support for that view. Yeah, that that's a doctrine that starts it, it, textually in the Bible. There's no explicit reference that committing suicide is 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 sinful. Although you know many people have read parts of the Bible to to to, to reach that conclusion. There are many cases, for instance, like one thing of Samson bringing about his own death um, is not considered. Uh, Unreligious, but in fact, is an act of act of his act of his faith and bravery. Um, so it, it's something that appears in church doctrine somewhat later, usually starting with Saint Augustine and afterwards. Um, but by the time of 19th century North Carolina, at least among white churches, that's a fairly common doctrine that uh, suicide was among the worst crimes a person could commit, if not the worst crime, because it it's the one crime that you can commit where you cannot ask forgiveness afterwards. Whereas if you murdered somebody, at least potentially there's a chance for salvation if you ask for forgiveness. Suicide uh, doesn't allow that option. This all changes then with the war itself. Uh, this this both, both, both un, unrelenting negative attitude toward the act and, and rarity of the act among white North Carolinians uh, changes with the war. On the surface, one would say, well, I guess that's not surprising. You, you, you fight a, a traumatic war and lose. You might expect that. Um, it, it, is there anything surprising about this development? Well, I think it's surprising that in large part no one's either within the historical community or uh, at the time was entirely aware of that or ready for that. Uh, this suicide epidemic, that's the phrase that they used or sometimes they called it a suicide mania, um, it has not really been documented, uh, at least before my book, to any, any great extent. Uh, you know, I, I think on the one hand, it, it, you're right. I wrote this in in the midst of the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and paying close attention to the fate of soldiers who had come back from two or three tours overseas and, and their experiences and how their experiences left them you know emotionally unable to to readjust to civilian life for a variety of reasons and the enormous costs they've paid uh in the years since um, you know the one big difference though between the experience of soldiers today and the experiences of soldiers in the 19th century is that we live in a, in a post-Freudian world in which we expect people to be influenced by their, the experiences they've had and, and can understand why you know, a soldier who has been home for a year or two years or five years or ten years is still dealing with the psychological ramifications of what happened to them. In the 19th century, they didn't really have the intellectual apparatus to, to think about why somebody committed suicide. That when they somebody committed suicide, they looked at what happened to that person earlier that day or earlier that week. They wouldn't never thought to think about what was that experience, person's experience five, ten years beforehand. And so when this suicide epidemic really reaches its uh, sort of fruition in the 1870s and 1880s, North Carolinians and Americans generally really didn't have the tools 
intellectually to cope with it. Uh, they didn't have the tools to understand it uh, in the ways that we do and, and to prepare for it and to anticipate it. Well, it must have been a, a, a dreadful thing to read in the paper uh, regularly about uh, suicides taking place. I want to ask you a question about about just that, about the sources that you use to uncover this. But first, let's take a short break. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking today with David Silkenat from the North Dakota State University and author of Moments of Despair. We'll be back in just a moment with more Civil War Talk Radio. stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market everyone has a belief system that they stand by it's comfortable and safe if you believe that a hot stove will burn you you won't touch it sometimes beliefs like this are practical but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system. And by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambricks, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David Silkenat, author of Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce, and Death in Civil War Era North Carolina. We've been talking about the first of those three uh, topics, suicide in North Carolina. After the Civil War, the, it takes a, a sharp upturn from being something rare among white North Carolinians uh, to, uh, uh, David, what you called the suicide mania uh, in the post-war era. How did you track this down? You make the, the comment in your book that there, are, they, there were not regular death statistics the way we would have today. How did no. you find out? Well, it's very hard to, to measure suicide rates. Even today, it's very hard to get an accurate handle on how many people take their own lives. Uh, and so I tried to triangulate it uh, by looking at a number of different sources. One of the sources that I found very useful was looking at accounts of suicides in newspapers. And, and what I found was there was a, a almost a geometric increase in the number of suicides covered in newspapers. Uh, and newspaper editors were very cognizant of the fact that there were many more suicides occurring in the post-war period than in the, in the pre-war period. 
Um, so that was one sort of set of sources I used, and I found something on the order of four to 500 accounts in newspapers from North Carolina of, of North Carolinians committing suicide. I also tried to look at uh, records from the state's insane asylums. There were three uh, insane asylums in North Carolina by the, by the end of the 19th century, uh, and those helped to, to figure in with some of the, the newspaper accounts. I tried some places had death records. Raleigh, for instance, had some death records. Uh, that I tried to use those to also help sort of figure out the, the figures. Um, I don't feel like I can say conclusively how many people committed suicide, but at least people at the time believed they were in the midst of a suicide epidemic, and the evidence seems to point in that direction. These newspaper accounts, uh, as you point out, they, they lack the condemnatory language of the pre-war ones, uh, but there was one in particular that, that stood out uh, in which the this uh, the, the newspaper printed the contents of the uh, where did it go here uh, of the 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 suicide note and I've written the wrong page number down I'm sure you are guessing which one I'm looking for yeah um, let me share just a little bit of this with our uh, listeners but now that darn I thought I wrote the correct page down um, the the, the circumstances were that the uh, the person discovered that by a long train of circumstances. Yeah. Well, you know better than I do. Yeah, right? sure. That uh, he was his own, essentially his own grandfather. Yes. Yeah. He married a, a, a widow with a grown-up daughter. Daughter. The daughter marries his child. Mm-hmm. Um, they have children of their own, therefore you're the uncle. Of, and so it becomes quite complex, right. but you end sure. up discovering you're the husband of your grandmother, therefore you are your own grandfather. Uh, the, the thing that struck me, of course, is that this was a, a novelty a song sure. from the 1940s. Uh, Ray Stevens eventually recorded it. And when I read your version, tempted, I, I googled back to see if I could find an earlier one than the one you have. Uh, and there was one there are a lot of references to Mark Twain, none yeah. of them backed by anything. Is this? Do you know anything more about this particular story? That 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 the only reference I have to that particular one is is the one in the in the newspaper. Um, I couldn't find any other sort of correspondence to to support it. But I think that story is indicative of the fact that the stigma had it didn't evaporate in the post-war period, but it. it it definitely moderated, and what one finds is that white newspapers, when they're describing white suicide, are much more likely to be sympathetic. They're much more likely to express the opinion that the person who committed suicide may have been justified in taking their own lives, and that their eternal salvation wasn't um, necessarily jeopardized by their choice to commit suicide. We have I found many accounts of of ministers writing letters to family members of, of people who had committed suicide saying that suicide didn't necessarily mean that the person was was condemned that we would be reunited with them in heaven in this kind of language. Um, and I found a very sort of strong correspondence between both that frequency and the and the attitudes that that white North Carolinians expressed about about suicide. And I think it's a large part of the consequence of 
of, of after the war, you start to have prominent members of the community, men who had fought in the war and had been held up as as paragons for, of the community. And when those people take their own lives, people start to question and reconsider the attitudes that they had held in the decades before the war, that suicide cannot be as awful as we thought it was if good people, good men, men people looked up to in the community would would take their own lives. I found many accounts of, of funerals, for instance, in the post-war period of men who had committed suicide and how this was the largest crowd that the community had ever seen at a funeral. And I think that's indicative of the fact that, that suicide had lost, among white North Carolinians, much of that stigma that it possessed before the war. Well, that, uh, uh, to, to tack back quickly to the, uh, the, the suicide note issue, my reading of the, the I'm My Own Grandpa mm. note was that, that it's actually a joke, uh, and if so, that would actually confirm your point that, yeah. that a newspaper could print this humorous uh, fake suicide note uh, because the newspaper's editorial comment was he can scarcely be blamed for killing himself sure. under the circumstances. It's very, very wry Mark Twain-style to be remark sure. to make. Uh, but the reason all these people are doing this, uh, the, these people you just mentioned, the mm-hmm. well, pillars of the community, people who fought in the war, uh, the listener to the show and, and anyone reading the book, the first conclusion they will jump to and probably and want to ask the author is, was this post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, I, 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 well, my attitude towards the, that question is very, you know, it's very hard to put people who have been dead for 150 years on the couch and sort of psychoanalyze them in the way that one would want to before making that kind of diagnosis, not that I'm qualified to make that diagnosis now. Um, but the evidence seems to suggest that the, the people who committed suicide, the veterans who committed suicide at least, many of them had very traumatic war experiences. Um, many of them had served as prisoners of war, uh, which we know from later conflicts is one of the risk factors for post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of them had wounded in combat. Many of them had limbs amputated. Um, which also has a, a very strong uh, causal element with post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans of Vietnam or more recent conflicts. And so while I'm very hesitant to point at individual soldiers and say this individual had post-traumatic stress disorder, I think the evidence points to the fact that a large number of Confederate veterans or Civil War veterans generally had a very hard time dealing with the emotional consequences of combat, that the trauma of fighting in the war was not stuff they could, not in a, a phenomenon they could slough off at the end of the war, that it, for many of them it stayed with them for the rest of their lives, and they were haunted by memories and nightmares of their experiences, and we can call that post-traumatic stress disorder if we want to, and I reference that in the book. Um, although I'm careful to to try and, and, and say I'm not able to really sort of make diagnoses at 150 years difference. Now, uh, I think it was, uh, what was his name? Uh, was it Dean, Eric Dean, who... Uh, sure. Who, who makes that argument? Even, yeah. That, that this was very common among Civil War veterans. Veterans, yeah. 
And I, yeah. and I would largely agree with that. You know that 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 you know it's hard to make medical diagnoses. Uh, for for patients uh, who have been dead for 150 years, but I, I think there's no reason to suspect that Civil War soldiers wouldn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. If you look at the conditions under which many of these soldiers fought, they were enormously traumatic. Uh, the, seeing the loss of life, seeing the uh, experience of, of, especially for those people who have been prisoners of war, what the, those camps looked like. Um, well, and the, uh, the the little I've read on this topic does suggest that it's the prolonged day to day exposure to tough conditions. So the prisoners of war certainly experienced that. And by the end of the war, the the trenches at Petersburg mean that you're oh, under fire sure. every day. Yeah, uh, that that was worse than 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 a single traumatic battle at Chancellorsville. Then a few months to recover, and then another single traumatic battle. Yeah, and uh, and I found that many of the soldiers that I was looking at who committed suicide after the war were people who had fought in battle after battle after battle, and so they had that kind of prolonged exposure and repeated uh, exposure to those kinds of traumatic experiences. So that at least points in that direction. Now, the the trend in in the, the attitudes of white North Carolinians toward uh, suicide moving from something that is, that is absolutely not to be countenanced to something that is uh, if not accepted, at least uh, so widespread that it is no longer, that it loses uh, some of the, the stigma. There's some of that same uh, a parallel uh, pattern in how uh, white North Carolinians look at divorce. Uh, is that accurate to say? That, that's, you know, when I finished, I did this research on the suicide part of the book, book first, and I was thinking that there must be other social phenomenon that, that mirrored that transformation. Uh, and I found that di- divorce, much the same thing happens, that before the Civil War, divorce was both very rare and very stigmatized among among white North Carolinians, that this was a, a choice that one made to put one outside the bounds of, of polite society, that this was not a choice that anyone made lightly or easily. Uh, and you see this very clearly in in the lawsuits when people file for divorce in, in, in the antebellum South. Uh, there are huge, huge petitions uh, in which one describes how one reached the conclusion to seek a divorce, and invariably they are describing how their partner has repeatedly violated the the, the terms of their marriage that they're. For women, they would say, my husband beat me repeatedly, but I stayed because I was a good wife. And then he had an affair, but I stayed because I was a good wife. And only after a dozen or so of these incidents did they reluctantly seek a divorce. And I think that says that those people who did seek divorce at least tried to frame it in a context where they were driven to seek a divorce by some pretty brutal treatment. Uh, and pretty unlivable circumstances. Um, and what I find is that in the post-war South, that necessity to, to justify seeking a divorce almost entirely disappears. The, the, the lawsuits filed shrink enormously from these enormous 
10, 12-page descriptions of how they had been maltreated to one or two-page claims that their husband or wife had, had engaged in some particular activity that they found justified divorce, and therefore they were seeking to uh, get out of the marriage. And so I found that, that both the rates and the attitudes mirrored very closely what I saw with suicide among, among white North Carolinians. Well, there's a, a subtext there you point out that before the war, marriage is seen very much as a social institution and uh, it's if a few people have to suffer unhappy marriages Marriages, in order that that the institution survive that's just a price you have to pay uh, which is not how it's seen after the war increasingly after the war marriage and divorce is seen as as a, a, a choice that is primarily of interest to the parties involved rather than to the community as a whole whereas some of the language in the antebellum South is very much saying that a marriage is more about the community than it is about the people, the couple who are in the marriage. Which, interestingly, the North Carolina legislature has returned to that view uh, in the last year or so with a uh, a, a man-woman marriage uh, constitutional amendment so that mm-hmm. uh, now it's about society. This is good because I know my wife and I, we... As long as gay people were happy, it was just tearing our marriage apart. But, <laughs> you know, now that they're now they can't get married, we're we're, we're okay again. Um, I'm sorry, I'm bringing modern politics. No, and sarcasm. Modern, modern politics enters our research all the time, whether we like it to or not. So, uh. well, it does actually. And 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 uh, in our third segment, we'll talk about debt, and and that certainly uh, in in today's economy is a almost universal phenomenon. Uh, divorce, fortunately, is not universal uh, uh, either then or now. But again, you use the word epidemic to describe what happens to the divorce rate in North Carolina after the Civil War. Uh, is this again, I, I, you know, is post hoc ergo propter hoc? Is it, is, do we just conclude the war caused it, or is there well, any reason? Well, I think reason? you know there are some very specific ways in, in which the war itself actually brought about the ends to people's marriages. If you look at the Divorces filed, divorce, divorce cases filed immediately after the war. A lot of them are as a consequence of choices one or either member of the couple made during the war itself, whether the husband who is off fighting in Virginia or where have you uh, engages in adultery or the wife who is at home does the same or, or, or similar kinds of incidents one finds an, an immediate impact of the war in, the, in this right right afterwards in terms of people filing for divorce because of things that happened as a consequence of the war. People are not only filing for divorce in court, they're also sending petitions to the Constitutional Convention that meets in Raleigh in 1868, which spends an enormous amount of time actually legislating divorces uh, as well as writing a new state constitution. Um, they get dozens and dozens of people saying, I, I need to get out of this marriage because of things that happened during the war. Uh, and so I think there's a direct impact with, with the war itself uh, on particular marriages. But in a more sort of long-term uh, framework, one of the things I think that's going on with the war for both suicide and divorce and with that is, is that 
the bounds that had closely tied white communities together really never heal after the war, that the war undermined the, the nature of, of white solidarity within a community that never really completely recovered. Um, and it manifests itself in, in, in the ways and the obligations people see to each other and to their community. Um, they start to think of divorce as a choice that they make that impacts them rather than a choice that is of broader social consequence. Uh, one starts to find that many of the divorce cases in North Carolina by the 1870s and 1880s take only five or ten minutes uh, rather than having a prolonged trial that uh, exposes the various flaws of the parties involved. They have rather, uh, at least by the people who are critical of it, very superficial uh, court hearings, ones that don't really expose the, the social underpinnings of marriage to the extent that uh, those who are upset about this divorce epidemic were I thought were appropriate. So we see this change in in the bonds of white North Carolina society being torn mm. apart, yeah. uh, which raises the question, what about uh, black North Carolinians? We're going to take another short break, and we'll come back and address that issue. When we return, I'm talking today with David Silkenat, author of Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce, and Debt in Civil War-Era North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David Silkenat. He's the author of Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce, and Debt in Civil War Era North Carolina. And we've been talking about suicide and divorce, uh, both of which increased dramatically after the war among white North Carolinians. But divorce, on the other hand, went in, in the opposite direction among 
uh, black North Carolinians, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, since slave marriages are somewhat ambiguous. Sure. Uh, what what happened with marriage uh, and divorce in the black community after well, the war? One of the things I noticed with with going back to suicide, actually, African Americans in the post-war period, while this suicide mania is taking a place among white North Carolinians, African Americans claim at least that they have no part in that. That's something that only white people do, which was a phenomenal change from the antebellum period in which slaves had, had routinely taken their own lives as a response to the brutalities of slavery. Um, uh, one of the most striking things I, I've, I've found in the con- during the research for this book was I was looking at the annual reports and, and the records from the black insane asylum. There were three insane asylums in North Carolina uh, during the 19th century, during the late 19th century, uh, two white asylums in, in Raleigh and Morganton, and a uh, black asylum in Goldsboro. And the superintendents at the, at the black asylum in Goldsboro, in several different reports, noted that they had many, many patients, but none of them were suicidal. And they had fairly racist ideas about why that was that that African Americans didn't commit suicide. And then when one of their patients eventually does take their own lives, the explanation that the doctor gave uh, in the annual report was that this particular patient, although he was black, he looked white, and therefore he didn't count. Um, in fact, the, the in the hospital logbook it said that the patient, all the one line it said was, the patient's name had committed suicide by hanging just before dawn, looked almost white. And so the extent to which whiteness and suicide had become uh, synonymous in the, in the post-war period. Uh, with divorce, what one finds is that the status of marriage for African Americans uh, was obviously very, ten- was, was very uh, fragile in slavery, Slave marriages were not legally recognized. Slave marriages were routinely broken up uh, by slave owners. Uh, and so in talking about what does it mean to be divorced if you're a slave, it, it was, a, was a very hard question for both slaves, obviously, but also for, for white North Carolinians. We, we find in uh, churches, for instance, uh, in biracial churches uh, in the antebellum period, Ministers debating, can a slave get remarried if his previous wife or husband had been sold away? What, under what rules do we apply to slave marriages that are different from, from white marriages? Uh, and so the, the picture about what, what constitutes divorce for, for slaves in particular is very fuzzy. After the war, one of the priorities of, of black churches in North Carolina is to strengthen the institution of marriage within the black community as much as it possibly can, because it sees marriage as one of the hallmarks of of, of, a rise of of black uplift. They see it as a sign that uh, uh, African Americans should be accorded full citizenship and the rights uh, accordingly. And, And so black congregations may place a very, very heavy emphasis, much more so than white congregations do in the post-war period, 
in maintaining marriages, in, in upholding uh, some of the stigma that had largely disappeared in, among white uh, North Carolinians, that the stigma for getting divorced among black North Carolinians is probably much higher uh, in, the post-war, uh, in the post-war North Carolina than it is uh, for whites. Uh, and so I think we, with both suicide and divorce, you're seeing the white population and the North population, uh, the white population and the black population headed in diametrically opposite directions, both in terms of behavior and in terms of attitude. That the what had been um, socially outside the, the, the bounds of, of, of proper conduct uh, suddenly becomes much more acceptable among whites. And the opposite happens for African Americans. So, the the question of slave marriage does raise all kinds of, of difficulties, um, especially in an environment where, as you say, uh, the former slaves are now taking marriage very seriously. They're all trying to. Many of them have their marriages uh, confirmed by. As early as, as during the war by Union chaplains. Oh, to be sure, that's why the, the first demands that that African Americans make upon the Union Army is to have some recognition of their marriages. Uh, that it seemed that having not having access to legal marriage is one of the things they felt was one of the great stigmas of of slavery, and being able to have those marriages, those relationships recognized, was extraordinarily important both during the war and immediately afterwards. Let me jump ahead to the third of your, your three topics, since our time is getting a little short. Uh, you write about debt as, uh, unlike divorce and suicide, there is a, a, a productive place for debt in any economy that people use credit. The other side of debt is credit. Uh, sure. Uh, so, and, and credit is a powerful tool. So it's not always bad to go into debt, but it was seen that way among white North Carolinians before the war, and this won't surprise uh, listeners who followed us this far, but what I think, what I found interesting was your description of how debt was disguised in pre-war North Carolina among uh, uh, whites, especially uh, upper-class whites with money, mm-hmm. as, as a, a gift economy. Yeah. Uh, how exactly did that work? Well, one of the things that white North Carolinians had a, a problems with throughout the antebellum period is, is they're constantly short on cash and they're constantly living beyond their means. And so they are constantly loaning each other money. If you read correspondence from almost any southern white family from before the war, they're constantly loaning money. You'll find you know, IOUs of various forms uh, embedded in correspondence. But they very, very rarely talk about them as loans uh, because they're very hesitant to ever place themselves in a position in which they appear to be dependent because the, the construct for dependency in the antebellum South is slavery. Slaves are dependent upon others. They're in a subordinate position. Uh, and so they often describe these loans, what appear to us to be loans as as gifts uh, and so we're in a, they're in a situation in which people are constantly loaning each other money in a, in a 
complex social network, loaning them to their money to their neighbors, loaning money to the people they go to church with. But they don't really account for them as loans. They account for them as part of the social fabric of, of what life was like in a, in a North Carolina town or city uh, in the antebellum South. Well, if, if you characterize money, if I send you some money and just say I'm sending you some money, yeah. then, then we can remain social peers. To be sure. If I say I'm lending this to you and I expect it back in six months with a certain amount of interest, then instead of depending on your honor to simply pay it back when you have the opportunity to make a gift to me, uh, now I'm challenging your honor, and, yes. and I can't do that. To be sure, and I can't, when you ask me for a loan, I can't turn you down, because turning you down is also an affront to your honor, right? See, if I, if I ask for a gift and you don't give it to me, you are, in essence, saying that I am not your equal. Uh, and uh, so antebellum white men were, were not very fond of other people telling them that they were not their equal. Um, no. And, and, and because of that very powerful social uh, role that honor played in the South, they, they developed this very strange credit network uh, that existed in any community in which people are constantly sort of loaning each other money. And recognizing how in debt somebody was, was not part of the social fabric of, of, of white culture. Um, and one of the sort of manifestations of this is, is the Bankruptcy Act that's uh, passed in 1841. There's an enormous uh, depression in the country. Congress passes a Bankruptcy Act which white Southerners generally don't take any advantage of at all, in large part because if you declare bankruptcy, you are positioning yourself first as, as a debtor, and secondly, you're making all those sort of credit obligations that had been invisible, you're making those visible, and you're saying, I am not paying these obligations that I have made. Uh, and so... The culture of, of, of white uh, North Carolina is, is very critical of those people who, who do c declare bankruptcy. There's only a handful who do, and their consequences socially are, are pretty horrendous, um, even if uh, financially it was probably the right choice for them to make. Well, and bankruptcy is supposed to give the debtor a fresh start. start. In, in the North, it's conceived that way. An entrepreneur mm -hmm. gambles one time too many, doesn't work out well, start over. But for a Southerner who declares it, it's not a fresh start. It's a it's an end because yeah. you'll never be able to get another gift slash loan from anybody. Uh, you're, you're no longer their equal. Now this all changes with the war, and and we're we're close to our end and, and can't go into detail here. Readers will want to get a copy of this and find out uh, what happens. Uh, I won't spoil the ending and tell you who wins the war. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of inflation in the Confederacy, and all these the, these networks of credit uh, fail to function when the money is bad and there's no goods to back it up. And what you end up with uh, after the war is a whole whole new world of credit. Um, it, it, yeah, but those uh, networks completely disappear as a consequence of the war, as, as you just said. And what ends up happening is 
basically credit becomes much more centralized in, in the South than it ever had been before the war. It gets centralized in general stores. It gets centralized in other institutions. And people start to recognize their indebtedness and often their common indebtedness. Many In many farming communities, they recognize that everybody in the town is in debt to the man who runs the general store, and they have a common interest as debtors. And the book ends with a, with a chapter on the on the populists looking at the ways in which populists start to think about and write about and talk about the morality of debt and what it means to be in debt uh, and what a legitimate debt is and what a uh, illegitimate debt is. Well, it's it is a fascinating subject. I am in your debt, uh, David, for um, for this very interesting book and for joining me on the show today. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, but it has been a pleasure, and oh, uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Listeners, you'll want to take a look uh, at a book that is less uh, depressing than you think it's going to be. Moments of Despair, Suicide, Divorce, and Debt in Civil War Era North Carolina. I learned from it. I know you will, too. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.